So can you dance to the blues? Um, I want to know, ask you a question. What happens when you turn a country music record backwards? Well, I'll tell you, you get your wife back, your job back, you, you stop drinking, and your pickup starts. Um, and, you know, picked a fine time to come back, Lucille. Thanks for the children and the crops in the field. So there's a lot of things about life that uh, are kind of blues. That's why we have the blues. That's why we have country music that talks about how bad things are. Um, now, in church, we tend to have praise songs. We tend to have songs that are praising God. And in Psalms, which we're talking about, we have a lot of praise. In fact, almost every psalm has praise in it someplace. But there is also 100 out of 150 that are some kind of a lament psalm, some kind of a problem that is being brought to God. And so I want to talk about that, that the reality is that life is difficult. We've already seen that 2020 has been difficult. We have a pandemic that is continuing to infect people and kill people all over the world. We have a pandemic, as people have said, of racism. That's been going on for 400 years in America. We have other places, casteism, tribalism, whatever you want to call it, otherism, that causes people to be persecuted. And we cry out about those things. And I, Honestly, I've been reading stuff about race, and if you read the things that were done with slavery, the things that were done to Native Americans, the things that are happening all over the world, it's hard not to be crying or crying out. And where is God when we cry out about those things? Does he hear us? Does he answer our prayers when we keep asking those questions, even in our congregation? We'll have a funeral this week of somebody who had... Um, their first child was a miscarriage, and then the second child was born beautiful. The then they had another child, twins. One died after a few hours. And then the first child had a disease at six months and never talked again and, and spent 50 years with a lot of issues. Why didn't God answer any of those prayers? Um, other people who've been thrown in jail for no reason, who had watched their father be shot for no reason, in our congregation. Um, and, and we could go on with the, the places that people have come from and the issues they had that brought them here who are immigrants. So we could list things. Why doesn't God answer those prayers? Um, when I was in Tanzania, I went to so many funerals of children. I, four-year-old pastor's only son in a, in a casket. What, why, where is God when that happens? Now, um, you know that there are times when you prayed and I think, and you asked God to help. Times when evil people were oppressing you or others in, the, in, in the, what's, what's happening in North Korea? Why doesn't God deliver the Christians who are in North Korea? So what do we do when we're oppressed, when there's evil, when there's injustice? Do we just say, be quiet? Do we read Psalm 23 like we did last time? When Psalm 23 is a great thing, very encouraging. Now, it, it acknowledges that there's enemies and there's problems, but it's a very encouraging psalm. Now, Psalm 23 was very intentionally, I think, by the editor of the Psalms, of the first book of the Psalms, the whole Psalms, put next to Psalm 22. Um, and there's connections between Psalm 22 and 23. 22 leads into 23, but uh, we like 23. It's our most quoted Psalm, probably. But Psalm 22 is the most quoted in the New Testament. Why is that? Um, so... 
in the Psalms, the Psalms help us. They help us to pray the things. We, we get to hear somebody else's prayer, somebody else who's walked through the swamps and the flowers and gets to praise God and complain to God. And we get to listen to how they do it. We get to use their words that might be able to express things we can't even express. They're intended to bring together what we say we believe. God's great. God's good. Thank you for the food. And the reality of sometimes people are starving and, and wars go on and racism and children starve and innocent people die. What is the reality of how we put that together? So what do we do when we see all that's wrong? Do we strike? Do we slander? Do we stuff? Do we sing praise? Anyhow. Um, now, should you complain? Or should you just be thankful? Um, Matthew 18, 15 to 17 says, if somebody sins against you, you should go to them and confront them. And so complaint is okay if you go to the person who is responsible for the complaint. So if I have a difficulty with my wife's cooking, I should talk to my wife about her cooking. And she'll probably say, why don't you cook? But let's say I talk to my wife about her cooking. She's got fantastic cooking. But it's much better if I talk to her and then she can say, oh, you like it that way. All right. You like brown rice and not white rice. We can make brown rice. But if I complain to my neighbor, well, my wife is always making white rice, and I wish it was brown rice. In Tanzania, it was there's rocks in the rice. Uh, if I complain to somebody else, then even once you fix it, it doesn't get fixed in their mind, right? So go to the person who is responsible. If you're going to protest this, if you're going to complain, don't complain to somebody else. Now, uh, we do a lot of this on Facebook, on la, 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 that person, that person. We don't go to the person who actually is doing it and talk to them about it. Um, why don't we do that? Well, actually, because it's hard for us to do that, and we don't actually love those people enough to confront them with the truth and change. So actually, if you've got issues with me, please come to me and talk to me um, so I can learn and change. So there is somebody who the psalmists and the people of Israel thought was responsible, was, was um, the person who could deal with all of it. That was God. Because they thought God was king. They thought he was the just king and that he would deal with their complaints. So these hundred psalms of praise are actually set up like a court case where you say, you know, you're a great judge and I know you're a just king. So I'm going to pray. I'm gonna, it's kind of like a praise. You're a just king. So I'm bringing to you my petition. Here's my problem. My neighbor is coming into my property and I got to deal with that. And here's the deal. Would you please take care of this? And then if you take care of it, then I will praise you and talk about what a great judge you are. I'll bring my vow of praise. That's the kind of court case scenario that this person is laying out in these Psalms of Lament. So I want us to look at Psalm 22. And specifically, this Psalm says, why is there no answer to prayer? Why apparently is God not answering prayer? Has God abandoned us? Is, is God there? Has he abandoned us? Does he not care? Um, we sometimes say, you know, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? Well, I don't know, and I don't care. Uh, that would be ignorance and apathy. But Psalm, David, as he writes this, does not believe that's possible. It seems that God's not there. So there's two ways around this God not answering prayer. One is you can say, no one's good enough to get an answer from God. That's fair enough. None of us are really deserved to have God answer us. Eliphaz says, says that to Job. Um, but Job disagrees. And says, you know, God is still just, and he still wants to... Is it true that the pastor who I saw um, with his four-year-old was not good enough? Or some of these other cases I just mentioned? Or, or that people 
You know, when somebody is killed in a police brutality thing, we, we immediately say, well, they must have done something wrong. We, we want to keep the world fair somehow. So we say, well, this, those people died of COVID. Probably they did something wrong. They should have worn a mask. They should have... But it doesn't fix everything. The other answer is there are no good prayers. James 4 said, you don't receive because you don't ask. You know, I think a lot of us don't ask because we don't think God's able to answer. But you don't ask. Or he says you ask to put it on your own desires, your own lusts, for selfish reasons. Um, do you think praying for your son not to die is a selfish? I guess it's kind of selfish, but not really. That people wouldn't die of COVID, that racism would end. Is that a selfish prayer? Not necessarily. And then, of course, sometimes we slip in, well, you didn't have enough faith. You didn't have a positive confession. You should not have been saying, this psalm starts with, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, for faith teachers, that's really bad stuff. You shouldn't say that. But I'm going to give you a little hint ahead here. Jesus quotes this psalm. So it must be good enough for Jesus. It must be good enough for us. So this psalm confronts the problem of unanswered prayers straight on because it's a good prayer of a good man. He, and, uh, so, and unlike some of the other psalms, he doesn't um, confront people. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, say that you know, people are bad or... Or we'll, we'll see some of the anger in some other psalms. So let's look straight at this psalm. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Don't you see the agony in that? Is it okay to pray that kind of prayer? Um, I want you to notice that this psalm actually starts with faith because it starts with, my God, my God. He's crying to God as Job cried to God, even as his friends did not. They talked about God. He cries to God and says, my God, my God. He says he's, it starts with faith, even as it says, why have you abandoned me? That's his experience. God is not saving him from the terrible situation he's in, and he is asking God why. Now, after this, he, it, it, he switches to saying, yet you are holy. He gives some reasons why he does trust, why, why he's calling to my God. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. God is present, inhabits his praises. So he's present somehow. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. So he looks back in the history of the people of God, and we can look back at the history of the people of God and say, God has answered a lot of prayers. And that can encourage us as we see what God has done in the past. But then he switches back to a complaint about, before he's complaining about God, now he's complaining about where he's at. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, have you ever been sneered at? And here he says, they sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on Yahweh? Then let Yahweh save him. If Yahweh loves him so much, let Yahweh rescue him. You see the, the snide comment there? And notice also the false premise. Kidner says, notice the false premise from which the unbelievers argue in verse 8, as always, that God is there for our convenience. You know, command these stones to be bred. Throw yourself down from the temple. 
come down from the cross. They say, you know, if he's relying on you, let him rescue you. God is not there for our convenience, actually. He's not there just to be our bellboy and, and uh, answer all of the requests that we put there. Um, so it's, he goes on and he says, yet this is his reason to trust, number two. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb. He puts God like a midwife here. Um, and you led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. He looks back on how God has personally helped him and how he learned to trust. Um, little side note here for Reuben, who is here uh, filming me. Um, breastfeeding is a great way to teach your kids how to trust in God because uh, a baby cries and you meet their needs and they, they learn very quickly that, you know, when I cry out, people meet my need and they learn to trust God. You led me to trust me you at my mother's breast. They learn that we are, I know eventually, you know, in a year or two, they have to find out that there are some things they can't do and some boundaries. But the first thing they need to learn is they can trust you and they can trust God because they get fed, they get what they need. And so the psalmist here says he trusted God. Immediately, God taught him from the beginning. So he's saying, I have reason to trust because in my experience, you've been trustworthy. In the experience of my people, you've been trustworthy. He reminds himself in this desperate situation of reasons why he should trust God. But then he calls out, do not stay so far from me for trouble is near and no one else can help me. So he feels like God is far away, but the trouble is near and there is no one else to help. And honestly, most of us try everybody else, every other politician, every other thing we can do, this, that, and the other. We don't really cry to God and realize that no one else can actually help us with COVID-19, with the racism we deal with. Not that we shouldn't do things, but we need to cry out to God. So now into the second big complaint. He's going on in his complaint, his protest, his protest to God. He says, my enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Now, the Psalms are great for these word pictures and exaggerations. And uh, so he says, my enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in like lions. They open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. So maybe this is a sickness. We can't actually find a particular time in David's life that would fit exactly this, this description. But he's exaggerating about how bad things are. He certainly had a lot of enemies. These are distant enemies. Then he gets closer enemies. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. In other words, he's so emaciated from uh, sickness or he's, he's been uh, beat up. and my, they, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Oh, Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. Notice he does backwards the things that he mentioned earlier, the sword and the oxen and the dogs. And he is 
um, exaggerating how terrible things are in order to get the point of how bad it is, how bad it is that he is in this situation. He cries out, have you ever felt like that? Personally, I felt like that, and you probably get sick of hearing this story, but when we were in Tanzania, and we were sick for 40, 40 times the first year, and then the next year we got uh, hepatitis, and uh, we lost our child, and first year I also started having panic attacks, and there was, we didn't know anybody. We felt abandoned, even though you were praying for us. Thanks for praying perseverance into us, Bethel Christian Fellowship. And um, in any case, when Esther died, when our child died, I felt where was God? Was this my reward for following him, following his call? I, I felt abandoned and alone. When have you felt abandoned and alone, like God was nowhere to be found? My God, my God, have you forsaken me? Maybe you've never had it as bad as David, but he is exaggerating how bad things are. Now, this cry of lament, we see that there's some kind of a lynching mob here. Um, you know, I've looked at this postcard from 100 years ago in Duluth. We were just um, remembering the lynching of these men in Duluth. And uh, they were like this, a, a, a lynching mob, the strong closing in on the weak, the many on the one. Motives uh, mentioned here, resentment, mob mentality, greed, wanting to see a gruesome spectacle. All of that is in his enemies. And... We see this here. He's calling out. But what's fascinating is that as David lays out his exaggerated description of his plight, which seems beyond anything he actually experienced, it's a literal description of what happened to Jesus with a method of execution that had not been invented in David's time, that had not been invented when the Septuagint was translated into, into Greek. Um, so Isaiah 53, the out-of-joint bones, the asphyxiation of not being able to breathe, the thirst, the heart failure, piercing humiliation, powerlessness, being naked and unable to defend your clothing from a gambling game. So I want to read from Matthew 27, 35 to 46 says this, after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothing by throwing dice when they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery, just like in the psalm. Look at you. Now they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mock Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he's the king of the Jew Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we'll believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way, and in the same way that David describes here. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So Jesus had memorized this psalm. Jesus was crying out to God with the words of David. 
he was seeing all of this happening. And so if you want reason enough to be able to pray psalms of lament and complaint and protest, Jesus did it. If you have reason to pray out loud, uh, memorize and meditate on the psalms, Jesus did it. And in the midst of this, it is literally true. John 19, verse 23, similarly says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that's what they did. So John sees, oh, this is Psalm 22 happening. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, think about Mary's watching her son die like this. He said to her, dear woman, here's your son. And he said to his disciple, here's your mother. From then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Yes, the scripture right here in Psalm 22. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And you'll notice the last word of this psalm is he has done it, very similar to it is finished. So it goes from my God, my God, why have you abandoned me to it is finished. So this psalm was literally fulfilled in Jesus' life. David never had all of this, but this exaggeration is a literal description of what happened to Jesus. It's a prophecy a thousand years before Jesus is crucified of what the son of David is going to experience. Now, what's interesting is the prayer of petition changes. When, now, one other thing. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that exaggeration for him? Or is it literally fulfilled? My understanding, and John Calvin and some others, is that actually, because of the sinfulness of Jesus taking on all of our sins, though he was sinless, he took on all of our sins, God, the righteous judge, had to abandon him and let him take the punishment, including abandonment from God, being thrust out from God's presence that we deserved. So God, in some sense, abandoned Jesus on the cross. So we can imagine that God might abandon us. Can, can you imagine that God might abandon his son? Now, obviously, Muslims and other people don't believe that's possible because how could he do that? But because of love for us, the Father and the Son were separated so that he could carry our sins, that he could carry the penalty of death and the separation, complete separation from God that happened. Now, um, there is, so I want you to think, stay a moment at the foot of the cross with Mary and his disciples. Jesus is hanging, disjointed, pierced, limp, dead, lifeless. After screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The philosophical problem of evil would be a present painful pressure that would be inescapable for Mary and those friends 
We had hoped that the kingdom was at hand and that Jesus was the Messiah, but no longer. He prayed, he pled, but he bled, and he's dead. Greg Boyd talks about um, in college, watching a, a, a movie of somebody describing they were in their concentration camp and some people were killed in, in World War II. And this, this uh, Jewish woman had to watch her son, who was like 12, be hung, but he wasn't heavy enough to actually tighten the noose. So he hung there and, and, and kicked in for, for like half an hour. And Greg just came out and felt like, you know, he looked up at the sky and he saw the stars and he's like, there must be a God. But he said, God, I can't believe in you. If, if I can't believe in you unless you watched your son die like that woman. And he screamed. And then it suddenly dawned on him that God had watched his son die in that excruciating thing that he had prophesied a thousand years earlier through the voice of David in the song that he sang. So, that's painful. But there is another option possible to the problem of evil. We must introduce the element of time. So, if God was just king, if he had power, he would destroy evil. He would, if he really cared, he would take care of it. But we can say because God is powerful and loving, he will take care of it. And that's what happens here. In verse 22, God has the power to defeat evil and he will. God cares for us so he will deliver us. Death rules, but resurrection is coming. So in verse 22, he says, it switches. And he says, I will, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. You notice how, notice how it switches there? He's not turned his back on them. He's listened to their cries for help. He's not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. Now, the picture here is the, is the temple or the tabernacle. And taking a vow, a sacrifice to God in a fellowship offering where you would sacrifice it, but you would also eat it. And not only your family would eat it, but you would bring your servants and the poor around your community and the Levites, and you'd eat it together, maybe even a two-day feast. Um, so it goes on, the poor will eat and be satisfied. All, all who seek Yahweh will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. Now, again, I want you to notice, these things were not literally fulfilled in the life of David, but they were literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So the exaggeration of the suffering that was literally fulfilled in Jesus is also the exaggeration of the resurrection and the joy that is literally fulfilled by Jesus. So to show that this is a literal fulfillment in the life of Jesus, it, this is also quoted in Hebrew. The later, later part of this is also quoted in reference to Jesus. 
Hebrews 2, 8 to 12 says this, you gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. That's people's authority who follow Jesus. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels like us. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, and now quoting Psalm 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. We don't see everything subject or under authority of man or Jesus at this point. Well, we do see Jesus, who learned obedience from what he suffered and is now declaring praise because God has answered him and raised him. For David, there was a fellowship offering, as we mentioned, fulfilling these things. But what is an exaggeration for David is literally fulfilled in Christ. So let's read on. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek Yahweh will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge Yahweh and return to him as the Lord. All the families of the nations will dow, bow down before him. This is a, a, the, every nation, every people, all the families, as promised to Abraham, are going to bow down before Yahweh. For royal power belongs to Yahweh. He rules all the nations. There's a much bigger picture, as Job found out when God answered him, didn't answer him. There's a much bigger picture than we know about what God is doing in his rulership of all the nations. But he is the king. He is the just king. And then it goes on, let the rich of the earth feast and worship, bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. So you see the, the poor and the rich, and the rich come and join the poor at this feast. And it says the fat. So maybe it's everyone. They have to humble themselves. And from the rich to the ones who are on the verge of death, everyone comes and bows before him. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. He has done it. It is finished. So, <laughs> what do you see there that... Uh, that uh, things that are an exaggeration for David but come true literally for Christ. I would encourage you to pause the video and think about that for a minute. A communion feast, a wedding supper of the Lamb, all the families of the nation, the rich and the poor, eat and are satisfied in a communion as well as uh, future generations celebrating his deliverance. So, what do I want to encourage you to do? I want to encourage you to complain and lament, and protest, and scream to God. Because he can change things. Often, I think we complain to everybody else because we think they can change things, or we can maybe change their minds anyways, but only God has all the power to change the things. And you may say, but he doesn't seem to answer. Ah, wait. Call. It's going to happen. Read, pray, sing to God, 
I'd encourage you, like Jesus did, to read, pray, sing to God at least one psalm each day this week. If it doesn't express your feeling or need, pray it for somebody else. Pick a verse and sing it. So if you're not feeling, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me right now? There probably is somebody in the church around the world who's feeling that. Pray it for them. If you're not feeling, <laughs> I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Pray it for others. Memorize, meditate, pray the Psalms to help you to walk. Even Jesus needed to pray and, and memorize and meditate on the Psalms. And he used it to persevere in the worst moment of his life, to cry out to God with that. Praise God for what he's done in Jesus. God will answer the prayers of the righteous. God will answer your cries and complaints and protests and prayers to him in ways you cannot imagine. David could not imagine how God answered these. It may take time, maybe even until after your resurrection. Do your complaining to God because he really can answer. But he won't answer if you just hide your complaints or you give your complaints to other people. He answers those who call on him. Someone, you think it's unspiritual to complain. So we give hymns of praise that go no farther than our lips. They're not really praise because our hearts, which he already knows, we need, they need to be backed up by faith in our hearts. Um, only after we have brought our situations and our hearts openly and honestly to God can he put faith in our hearts, like happened for David here. In the worst of his situations, he got faith that said, but I will. God will answer. Remember, true faith is a gift from God, not something we create with positive statements and getting ourselves going. The great statements of faith in the Psalms and Job come after bitter complaints. The faith is obvious because of how bad the situation is and how depressing it is. You know, uh, there's a, what we call the life of Brian. And on the life, the life of Brian, they, they have all these people on the cross and they're saying, uh, they're actually kind of a dance line. Look on the happy side of life. Look on the good side. You know, that's, that's the best the world can offer is look on the bright side. No, with God, we can look deep into the dark side. Because Jesus has gone there before us. God let Jesus die in agony and be buried. So God has not abandoned us. In fact, he came in a body like ours and experienced the worst possible so that we could experience the best possible. For Jesus, he literally was abandoned by God so that we will never be abandoned by God. Even in the darkest valley, God will be with us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God, as he was in prison, about to be executed under Hitler, he said, God prayed this so that we know we will never be abandoned by God because we know there is a resurrection beyond the worst. So we're living in Friday sometimes. We're looking at the cross. We're experiencing the worst. But Sunday is coming. Easter is around the corner. Today we will have sickness. But God will heal. Maybe now. Temporarily. But eventually he'll heal for good. That son will be healed and they will hold him again. That son, God is going to raise him to life. God will answer our hearts now and our situations eventually. God will be with us now 
in the midst of the worst. And we will be with him eventually on a new heaven and earth with the best. Let's pray. God, we need you in our world because our world is not what you designed it to be. We have messed it up with our sin. But you have come to be with us. So we thank you that you have not abandoned us, but you have come close to us, experienced the worst of our world, and gone through death into resurrection so that we can go there too. God, we want to follow you in the valley of the shadow of death and on to where our cup overflows with blessing and we'll live in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for being present with us. Give us faith to pray to you what's really on our hearts and what's really in our situations and bring it all to you because you will answer our prayers. Amen.